what made my investment worse at that time was I basically just kept thinking, oh, the oil price will come back. This is just a momentary clip. After I'd already put in my initial investment, I then did the next worst thing of basically trying to catch a falling knife almost without taking consideration that the oil price actually might be going down permanently. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research. And I'm here with today's featured guest. I'm just going to call him Mitchell. Mitchell, are you ready to rock? I'm ready whenever you are, Andrew. I'm not All as right. good as what you are because you've got a much better view. <laughs> All right, so let me tell the audience a little bit about Mitchell. After graduating with a postdoctorate degree specializing in accounting and finance, Mitchell embarked on a career in academia working in major research universities in Hong Kong, Canada, Singapore, and Australia. For 15 years, Mitchell published more than 50 international peer-reviewed journals. Ow, we just talked about that before this interview. Impressive. And he wrote several research book chapters, a research book, and various professional-related articles. During his academic career, Mitchell instructed at undergraduate, master's, and doctorate level. Overall, Mitchell has successfully supervised 10 doctoral students researching a variety of accounting and finance issues. In 2012, Mitchell left academia to pursue private sector interests full-time. Aside from working in several financial sector roles, he also launched two startup firms. One startup focused on providing logistics and event management services, while the other startup concentrated on providing investment consultancy research and asset management. After seven years following private sector pursuits, Mitchell decided to return to academia, taking up a graduate level professorship at the university, at a university in Dubai at the start of 2018. The opportunity to live and work in Dubai has provided the chance to broaden and enrich Mitchell's international accounting and finance knowledge. His move to Dubai, however, was not solely work-related as it also provided an opportunity to follow a lifelong passion for experiencing new cultures. In addition, Mitchell is a CFA charter holder like myself and a qualified CPA. Mitchell, take a minute. Tell us any last tidbits about your life. Well, I'm definitely not as exciting as you, Andrew. You've got a much better presenting voice than me, so hopefully your audience won't go to sleep. Or perhaps this could be their one time do go to sleep. So maybe <laughs> that might be an interview that they can redo all time and then they can sleep well and not have to worry about their investments. Well, I so, think that the one, the one thing you can wake them up with is your story. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Okay, Andrew, hopefully I can make this as quite cover everything it's quite a long story if i go through everything so hopefully you've got enough bandwidth to take this and hopefully the audience doesn't get too bored so let me just get the background if you don't mind i, I won't use the specific names of the companies but i'll try to sort of keep it sort of outlined as much as what i can so that you can follow on background to this really begins with that around 2010 when in the Singapore market at that time, it started to become almost very easy for an investor to make money in the oil and gas sector area. 
you could just about throw a dollar at any oil and gas sector company in 2010, 2011, and for the next several years, you were virtually guaranteed to make money. So there was, at that time, the SGX was seeing listings of offshore vessel companies, PSVs, the EPCs, they were seeing it right across the board. The two big ones in Singapore at that time was Keppel, was Keppel Sen Marine. So those were the two big ones. But from 2010, as the price of oil started to escalate, you had this emergence of all these range of new ones coming in. That's sort of the beginning point where you can perhaps see where we're heading towards my worst investment was this over-exuberance about, hey, I'm making money because I just invested into one oil and gas company and it made me a bundle of money. So, oh, I'll just invest into another one without really doing much research. At the time, so that gives a bit of the background that from 2010 to 2014, it was just throw a dollar, you'll get $10 back. So was focusing on two companies. There was one company, I'll call it the parent company, and then it had a subsidiary. The parent company was mainly focused on construction, procurement, and doing equipment manufacturing in the oil and gas. So they were really into the EPC side of the oil and gas sector. They had a subsidiary which was dealing more in the subsea or the deep sea sort of sector. I initially invested into the parent company, was quite successful with that investment. So I started to dig down towards the, the subsidiary. And so this was probably around 2013 at that point. Then what happened was market cap of the subsidiary, for example, increased from about 100 million Singapore dollars to about maybe about uh, $600 million. So at that time, my investment probably got about a four bagger or something of that range. The investment that I had with the parent, it had probably got a good 100% return on that from the time that I had it across about a two-year period. Then what I had was the a private equity firm came along and offered the parent entity the chance to sell their subsidiary. So the parent entity decided, okay, yes, let's just go and sell that. So they sold that. So at that time, I was still holding equity. I got a nice return. Let me ask you, at that point, you were holding the parent company and the subsidiary, or you were which which were you holding both of them, or which one? I I had both, Andrew. Got it. Okay. So I had, but I had a smaller proportion in the parent, a larger proportion in the um, subsidiary. And the subsidiary was listed. Yes, it was okay. a publicly listed company. So they basically sold it off. It was privatized, and obviously. I got my money back from my investment plus a nice little return. So I'm left with a nice big chunk of change and we all know what the next question is that we all face. Well, what am I going to reinvest it into? Hmm. So it was a big choice of do I go and put it into something else? Do I have something else? At the time that they did the sale of that subsidiary, parent entity had a dormant second subsidiary 
So they had this other subsidiary which they had been holding on to for a number of years. I think they'd probably held it. This was also, it was still a publicly listed company, but it was trading at like maybe two cents, two cents, three cents. And it was, it was dormant. The volume was virtually zip. Hardly anyone bought anything. It was a very illiquid stock. But when they sold their, that first subsidiary, soon after they announced, okay, what we're going to do is that we're now going to inject assets into that dormant subsidiary. We're now going to turn it into a offshore vessel company. So they teamed up with, they got into a joint venture with another company and they basically plowed a lot of assets into this dormant subsidiary. As soon as it was announced that they were going to do this joint venture and that they were going to create this OSV company, the stock price of that company basically went through the roof. It went from perhaps four cents to about 20 cents in about a month. So at that point, I missed it. I missed the, the situation of that immediate rise. So, but then after things subsided, and so we're now looking at about April 2014. So we're now, just to give a a better time frame for you, Andrew. The sale of the first subsidiary was concluded in November 2013. So what was I going to do with that money? I was basically deciding over several months from November 2013 to about March, April 2014. So again, as I said, the rise in the price of this dormant subsidiary, it started to take off during December 2013, January 2014. Then it subsided from about 20 cents and it went down to 14 cents. Then they more or less, company said, oh, we're going to inject more funds, we're going to sell some more shares, etc., etc." That's when I'm going, well, I've got this money. Hmm. I was successful before with this company or with the parent company. Hmm. Oh, they've got a good track record. So I didn't do very much research into actually seeing what was the state of the companies at that point. I more or less just had just assumed or just gone, yes, the financials are all fine. They've got great plans. Look, I made money before. Oh, I'll make more money. So I just basically just went on a wish and a hope or an expectation that because they were successful before, they will be successful again. I don't have to worry about the finances. I don't have to worry about the fundamentals. And I also failed to look at the macroeconomic picture because this was at the point that the oil prices was hitting about $120 a barrel. Fears of an oversupply in the market was starting to become quite ripe. So I was not looking at the macro figure. I was not looking at the macroeconomic picture. I was not looking at the fundamentals of the company. I just went on, I've got to do something with my money. It was successful and I just blindly went into it. So in about April 2014, I just dumped everything into this company thinking it was going to be great. I'm assuming that I'm gonna double my money within 12 months, I'll be fine. Don't have to do anything more. So 
that was the investment point. Unfortunately, in July 2014, the oil price basically went belly up. So once you got past July, it just started to go down, down, down. What made my investment worse at that time was I basically just kept thinking, oh, the oil price will come back. This is just a momentary clip. So I was then, after I'd already put in my initial investment, I then did the next worst thing of basically trying to catch a falling knife almost without taking consideration that the oil price actually might be going down permanently. I got into that mindset, oh, it's gone down $10. Oh, that's okay. The share price of the company, this was the second subsidiary I'm now talking about. Its share price went from 14 cents to say 10 cents. And I'm thinking, oh, this is another good chance to buy some more. So I bought some more. Oil prices kept coming down more. Share price kept coming down more. I'll just price average down. The management, they were successful before. They'll get the company back. Not a problem. So from the middle of 2014 to the end of 2014, it was just a case of just ignoring fundamentals, ignoring the macroeconomic picture, just continuing to think absent-mindedly. I was successful before. I was okay management will do it however by the end of 2014 oil prices were not going to come back it was it was pretty bad and so at this point the the share price was probably around around six cents so it dropped from 14 cents to six cents i had price averaged myself down to about 10 cents so i was still i should have done the logical thing and just got out completely but i didn't then during the first half of 2015, I should have had alarm bells and paid more attention to the parent entity because I was just focused on the subsidiary. I was focused on what they were doing. When in fact, what I should have been doing at that point was that I should have also been reading a lot more of the disclosures of what the parent entity was doing. The parent entity basically had said that they had won a lot of big contracts, but they hadn't signed on the dotted line yet. So there was this thing that they kept saying, our book order is $2 billion worth, but they hadn't actually signed, they had an agreement, but they hadn't actually formalized the contracts. So what happened was from these supposed contracts were initially announced in mid Q3, Q4 of 2014. But by middle of the year in 2015, they more or less had never ever formally announced that they had signed the contract. Then what happened was I'm still thinking, oh yes, everything's great, everything's fine. But I should have been watching the warning signs. Then what happened was that the parent company suddenly suspended trading and they basically said, we've gone bankrupt. Oh, uh, okay. Hmm. Um, hang on a sec. Then they came out a week or so or a month later and they said, well, yes, we admit that we hadn't signed the contracts formally. What they were basically doing was that 
every announcement that they were making, they kept telling you that their book order was $2 billion, when in fact, it should have only been like 300 million. So they had inflated it. So this parent entity had inflated their book order. So as soon as they went bankrupt, the share price of the subsidiary, which was the publicly listed company, it basically tanked. It basically lost 60% overnight. I was left holding the bag going, hmm. Meaning at what price was it? What price was it now at that point? At that point, it dropped down to about 1.6 cents. Okay, so 14, 10, then 6, then 1.6. All right. Yeah. So you're at one point, and it's still trading. How much did the parent company own of the subsidiary, uh, roughly? It owned about 40% at that time, 40, 50%. Got it. So, it, and what it did was that it was doing a lot of, the subsidiary was doing a lot of related party transactions with the, with the parent entity. So a lot of the work that the parent entity was doing, it would basically farm out or outsource to its subsidiary. So as soon as the parent went bankrupt, the revenue stream of the subsidiary just went, well, uh, okay, well, we don't have much so their revenue basically went in half. So it was a situation that left holding the bag. I mean, there was a lot of things there. Fortunately, the I will admit that I'm still holding on to the company. It's gone down so far. If, if it goes any further, who cares? I've lost all the money anyway. Compared to a lot of other OSV companies in Southeast Asia, it's one of only a few that actually are making money. So they're still profitable. It's just that they've had a, quite a bit of baggage. So their share price does not want to go up. Got it. Well, that was very well explained. I mean, I could understand it. Let me tell you what I took away from that and then tell me if I've missed anything. There's a couple of things that, that I take away from that story. And that is, um, first thing is that when you're buying stocks, you always want to buy a portfolio of stocks and not put more than a certain amount, maybe 10, maybe 5% of your money into any one. So that diversification concept is number one. Now, we didn't, I didn't ask you about the rest of your portfolio. So could or could not have been the case that, that, was, that you were doing that. But for the listeners, always make sure never to put all of your money into one. Now, the second thing is that we always see this saying that that is a regulatory saying really past performance does not guarantee future performance and that's very true no matter if a company made money for you and you you liked it the management did a good job that does not mean that that's going to work in the future the third thing is that good good companies or companies that have done well can get crushed in a sector downturn and so sometimes we like to think, you know, this is a good company, good management, they've done well. But if a sector is going into a downturn, almost no company, you know, does well in that. So therefore, when we come to the, the other point, and that is uh, the other point is about, you know, doing your research. It's so hard, you know, particularly when you're trying to pick stocks to, to be able to do deep enough and have the time enough to do the deep research. And then you've got to revisit that research on a regular basis. And so the last thing is I just wanted to mention from my perspective was about corporate governance. And when we think about corporate governance, um, people always tell me that, you know, uh, I, don't, I like to invest in companies that have good corporate governance. And there's plenty of companies that have a history of good corporate governance. But the problem is, is that companies 
surprised the market with bad corporate governance. You know, if everybody, if a company is already disappointing the market with bad corporate governance, that's already in the price. So we don't have to worry about that too much. Everybody knows. But it's the surprises that happen for various different reasons. And it's very hard to predict those surprises. So again, that's where the diversification concept kind of helps. Did I miss anything on that? You made an excellent point with the portfolio diversification. Just to not try to make it out that I'm a worse investor than what I am. You're correct with that thing of you have to try to take out the emotions of things and be a lot more straightforward or have a limit. I was doing exactly what you were inferring was I was sort of like, let's say that we have a 100% portfolio. And what I was doing was that I was just so adamant that this dormant company, were, which then, which had taken off, yep, the management, I'll get the money back. I'll get the money back. I was too confident that they would. Every now and again, I would sell shares in a good company from a different sector. Like, let's say that I had made a return of maybe 20% from a company in the banking sector. I was then taking the, the profits and taking the money from that to try to buy this cheaper oil and gas. So I was then nuking the, the returns that I had made, the positive returns. I was basically pouring it into this subsidiary thinking, I'll get it all back, I'll get it all back, but it just kept getting worse and worse. Then, as you said, the portfolio starts going the other way. Instead of being, I will suggest that at the time, I had a very nicely well-balanced portfolio. But as I began to shift everything to try to recover my losses or to take advantage, I don't think I actually told it in my own mind that I was actually making losses. I was telling myself, I'm buying it cheap. So therefore, I'm going to make a bigger profit. So instead of going, I've made a 5% loss, I was going to go, yeah, okay, but I'm just pouring it in at a cheaper price, so therefore I've price averaged it down, therefore I'll get a 20% return and I'll be richer. So by the end of 2014, instead of having a nice well-balanced portfolio, I would say that my portfolio had, half of it was very well-balanced, the other half was was absolutely terrible. I want to wrap this up on the point that you've just made. And that is that when a stock is going down, we rarely think, oh, I'm losing money on this. We think that, you know, oh, it's going to come back or I'm going to put more into it because it's gotten cheaper. So for the audience, I would say uh, a big lesson uh, to take away. And, and I'm, I was going to ask you one question or one, one question about the one action, but I think the one action that I take away from this is simply try to set a stop loss when you buy a stock. And if it hits that stop loss, sell it. And if it goes that down, way. if it goes down more and more and more, then reconsider whether you would allocate some to it. If it goes up, well, you miss some and you, you know, you win some and you lose some. So would that be the one action that you would recommend? That would, that would be the, I concur completely with you. I think that you have to basically, before you make any investment, you have to be pretty clear and have a conviction what your stop loss will be and also what you are planning to sell it. When you don't just buy a stock and say, oh, I'll hold on to it until it gets to 
$50 million, you have to have some sort of plan that if it goes up by 40%, you'll take your money and move somewhere else. But similarly, on the other side, when it goes down, you have to sort of have that plan from the beginning. I can risk a loss of 15%, okay. But as soon as it goes down 15%, you have to basically just take all the emotion out and just go, I don't care whether it's a good stock or it had good history in the past, just walk away and leave it. You can revisit it, as you said, Andrew, but if you revisit it, you have to really go into it in depth. Don't take all emotion out and go back to really looking at everything again and be very cautious to do it. Make sure that you've got a set plan before you do it. If it goes up to your limit, get out, unless there is good evidence that it's going to still keep skyrocketing. But if it goes down, have that stop loss. As soon as it hits the stop loss, just stay out of it. There you Don't go. Don't try to catch that falling knife. And for those people that are adverse to a stop loss, I think the message from this story is have a plan. That's the key. What is my plan if things were to go wrong? Well, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Mitchell, thanks again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. You have any parting words for the audience? Don't be scared to invest. Don't ever stop investing because I think that nine times out of 10, you'll make more than what you'll lose because the stock market has a tendency to go up. Just do your research, learn from your mistakes, have a plan, be comfortable with what you're doing and you should be able to make some good living out of it. Boom. Well, there's a wrap on another great story to create, grow and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I will see you on the upside.